Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about The House on Capel Hill, which is Ren's graphic novel, and we're going to be talking about the art style they're using, specifically you know, their artistic influences, what kind of manga has influenced the art style, and how their style has evolved over the years. It's a pleasure to be back. I know it, this is really exciting because you know there's so this is a picture that Ren drew and you can see all of their influences here from and we're going to be starting from right to left so you can see there's a lot of different things here anime manga some cartoons and I think that is Art Nouveau right yep that's exactly right right so there's an art movement in there as well so the first thing we're going to talk about is Sailor Moon on the right <laughs> Um, yeah, Sailor Moon was definitely, uh, a huge influence on me. Like I, you know, I was definitely one of those kids. I feel like it's a whole generation that's like, yeah, I grew up watching Sailor Moon. Um, there was something about the art style that I just absolutely adored, that it was almost just existed to be pretty. Um, mm. and I think that's something that stuck with me forever, but, um, and it, you know, it made me want to draw. I was always drawing characters, trying to draw sailors, stuff like that. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I wanted to draw like that, but I didn't understand how to do that. And it set me down a long road of trying to draw anime. <laughs> <laughs> so Tete is actually watching our stream right now. And she says, hey oh. there, my lovelies. Hi, Tete. So glad yeah. you're here. Thank you for joining. This is really exciting because you know it's been a while since someone has joined our streams. And you know, every time someone can join and comment, I can actually do something on Restream that shows their comment at the bottom. Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. So every time Tete says something, we can show it at the bottom here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sailor Moon was definitely something big in the 2000s and 90s. And, you know, it had a lot of great artistic styles that were really inspirational to a lot of people. What was the most charming thing ab about Sailor Moon to you as a kid and even now? Um, so the funny thing is that now I kind of look back on it and I recognize because I'm also very much a fan of older manga and anime um, as um, is going to come up. Um, and, you know, manga from the 60s and 70s and even from the 50s had a very particular style to it. And anime style has evolved over the years. And people can even say that the 90s anime had a very specific style and a specific flavor. Um, and I feel like Sailor Moon is a great example of an anime that does both. Like, yes, is she definitely a modern, hip 90s, 2000s teen? Yes, but d does she also keep some of the um, the style and little nods to the the artwork of the mangaka of the 1960s and 70s? She absolutely does. The streaming mm -hmm. hair, the giant sparkling eyes, you know, there's just certain things about the style that is evocative of older um older anime and manga styles. And mm -hmm. I, I love that. I appreciate that so much. Um, I think also for me as a kid, it was, um, it was really cool to see a show that was just about girl superheroes in a kind of way. And they, you know, they're also normal teenagers who have very different personalities and um, interesting things that they get up to when they're not saving the world. <laughs> um, 
And I think that from American, um, or maybe I should, yeah, I think I'm going to say American uh, production companies, whatever you want to call it, it's less common. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially during that age, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, you had your X-Men that included a pretty diverse cast, but there was never, you know, there weren't really any, like, uh, heroic figures that were marketed towards girls, towards little girls specifically. Mm-hmm. How about Powerpuff Girls? I was actually not allowed to watch Powerpuff Girls as a kid. My mom had a lot of weird... I don't know what her deal was. I snuck a few episodes here and there, but you know, I didn't watch it religiously as a kid. (laughs) So that one kind of evaded me oddly. (laughs) I see. What is that little creature underneath um, Sailor Moon? Is it also from? Oh, so that the one with the bat wings and the little ball, that is a Moogle. And those are from Final Fantasy. Um, and, uh, I kind of wanted something that could be an easily recognizable, um, little, little thing that people would recognize that's Yoshitaka Amano's work. Um, he did character design for, I think he's done character design for every Final Fantasy game. And, um, I remember watching my brothers play. I loved those games and just pouring over the, the books that came for these games because I loved the artwork so much. And if you look up other stuff that he's done, you could definitely say of Amano that he is like the pinnacle of Japanese nouveau. So his, Mm -hmm. his work is just so elegant and sumptuous. And um, that always spoke to me. Definitely. Right. And Tete said, yes, Final Fantasy. Absolutely amazing work, especially with his concept designs. Yes. Yeah. Um, Tete has talked about Amano as well. I think he was one of her biggest inspirations, especially since I believe he has done a lot of gothic style work. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'd say that he is absolutely a gothic nouveau artist. He can do lighter stuff, and but, you know, I think it's his darker stuff that's really appreciated and... Um, Interestingly, he actually has a few um, pieces that he's done that were operas. uh, And my favorite work of his was um, his painting of the Flying Dutchman, which is kind of more in line with his gothic sensibilities than most of the Final Fantasy stuff was. Mm -hmm, Right. And below um, the Moogle, I believe, is um, one of the Totoros from um, My Neighbor Totoro, which is a Miyazaki movie. It's the white one that looks like a ghost. Yeah, yeah, it's the the baby Totoro. Um, That movie, like, I watched that more religiously than I watched Disney when I was a little kid. That was my first, like, VHS that belonged to me. That movie is so special, and um, a lot of Miyazaki's work has been super influential and inspirational in my, um, the way I, you know, want to create art, the things I want to make, the things I want to express in my art has definitely had a lot of influence from Ghibli on the whole. Is it especially the sense of wonder? Yeah, um, I would say the sense of wonder, there's, I think, especially in in the earlier Ghibli films, there is a sense of nostalgia, even in his more serious work, like um, Princess Mononoke, 
there's a sense that these worlds we're seeing are so lived in and they're so familiar. Um, and I, I love the quality of that um, mixture of whimsy and nostalgia. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, definitely his worlds feel very lived in. Even if we're not given, you know, a huge tome of information about the world, you know, it just feels so alive. I think that's why he's very successful uh, as a work, to me especially, since, you know, I don't really have the time to read through, you know, five tomes of detail about fantasy worlds. But then he makes his worlds, it's just, this, you know, when you watch it, it's instantly you understand it. You don't need to read like, you know, this huge guide on, oh, so this is how this thing works, you know, right? which exactly. unfortunately some fantasy falls into sometimes. That's very true. And I think that that, um, honestly, I think that kind of keeps people from wanting to explore fan- fantasy. It makes it too intimidating. Um, but when you can offer somebody an experience where um, things are just familiar enough that your readers or your audience can figure out the rules, as it were, um, while still enjoying fresh twists and, um, you know, aesthetic and whatnot. I think that's a really great offering to be able to give. Exactly. Exactly. You just have to balance it out. Exactly. Yes. And Tete said his illustrations referring to Amano for the Vampire Hunter D series were just phenomenal. Yes, they were. Absolutely. He did a volume also of Sandman with uh, Neil Gaiman, and it is stunning. Absolutely stunning. I need to see that. That's very interesting. I never knew that he did collabs with superhero, you know, writers. Yeah. um, And it's funny because I feel like um, Gaiman kind of straddles that line as well. Like he's, you know, he does fantasy. He does superhero. He does, I mean he really straddles genres and so does Amano and they, they really work well together. They both Mm -hmm. have a very, um, a very acute sense of the elegant macabre. Mm -hmm. And Tete says Miyazaki creates some of the most immersive worlds in fictional settings. Agreed. Yeah. Every detail just, you know, adds so much to the setting and it just really draws you in without having to info dump you. Yeah. It's just enough to get you immersed. Right. So behind the Totoro, um, is that Lady Oscar? Oh, that is such a close guess. And I actually started, I have, I have sunk into the Rose of Versailles oh. uh, mania. Um, that is actually the title character of Ryoko Ikeda's Claudine, which um, oh is a shorter piece but that one is another manga that um one of the probably the primary theme is questioning um gender uh, gender roles and um that kind of thing and and it really struck me especially as a piece having been written in the 70s which of course some of the language is outdated as far as like what terminology they use um but it struck me how deep and how compassionate it was. I was that is not something I would have expected from um I don't know. It it just wasn't something I was expecting from manga, but I I think that's another great thing about it is that the more I read it, the more I explore manga, the more it surprises me and that's that's a delightful adventure. Mhm, definitely. There's definitely a lot of classics in the 70s and 80s. 
absolutely. As a as a Gundam fan, I'm all for uh, older anime. That that's been going since the '70s as well, and um, it it always has something to say, and it had so much to say even then. Mm-hmm, definitely. And behind um, Sailor Moon is the Phoenix, right? Yeah, so um, kind of the manga that changed the way I look at graphic novels and the way I looked at storytelling um, at the time was Osamu Tezuka's uh, Phoenix series, which um, I think only takes place across one universe, but he kind of renames things. Um, but it'll skip between like one volume is set in prehistory and another volume is set in the, you know, distant, distant future. And, you know, and it kind of just leaps back and forth uh, in between until you kind of get a meeting in the middle towards the end of the series. And I thought that was just such an interesting way to play with um, telling a story over time and directing your audience towards what you want that what you want them to see and what they need to see to understand the story as you're trying to tell it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I can really see the influence of a phoenix on your work, you know, with different worlds and, you know, just showing enough to give us an idea of what's happening, but never overloading us. Yeah, that and that is a, a struggle to balance, especially when you're an author and, you, you know, you have all these ideas and you know where you want to put them, but, you know, as time goes on, you have to kind of rearrange things mm-hmm. so that you can guide your, you know, it's almost like composition in a, in a painting because you're guiding the viewer's eyes around the canvas with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very careful balance that um, takes, requires a lot of patience. <laughs> it does. And, you know, this actually kind of reminds me of something that Tete and I talked about. Yeah, she's saying Tezuka's use of graphic really modernized and standardized manga across the board. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's interesting that Tezuka's style was influenced by Disney, the big eyes. Yeah, you know, it kind of went back and forth. I've heard that another really big influence on early anime was actually Betty Boop which Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. Big eyes, tiny mouth. You know, she had these, her hair had these, you know, come to think of it, the way her hair was shaped is pretty similar actually to how um, in Tezka's work, when he has someone with curly hair, it looks very similar. Mm -hmm. The way that it's drawn and shaded in and it's very simple, no matter what direction she's facing, it looks the same, much like Astro Boys does. (laughs) (laughs) But he's Um, a robot, so that makes sense. I mean, yeah, but it has, I think Tezuka actually said he designed Astro's hair so that no matter what direction he was facing, he could always draw it the same way. Because when you're drawing it panel after panel after panel, you know, you want something that's repeatable without being exhausting. Mm-hmm, that's very true. But yes, what I was saying about Tete's conversation about, you know, the complexity of these worlds. I, we were talking about um, superhero comics, and one of the big problems in our viewpoint with a lot of superhero comics is that it's overly complex, making mm. it impossible for people who are not longtime fans of the universe to really understand what's happening. Yeah. So I tried 
and attempted to read multiple uh, Superman comics. And, and it was impossible for me to understand because there were so many <laughs> Earths. So in the Superman universe, there's like a billion alternate universes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3. And there's like so many, like just so much information and so many alternate versions of different people. So yeah. it's very easy to get confused <laughs> and overwhelmed. Yeah, you shouldn't need a prerequisite class to read a comic book. <laughs> I know, that's what I don't like. Because I, I, I want to be able to jump into a story and kind of understand what's happening at least, right? Yeah. But I tried yeah. with a lot of Superman comics. And the only one that I could really get into was Red Sun, which had narration. Mm, you know, it had yeah. these boxes introducing the story, the premise, and what was going on in the main character's head. Unfortunately, a lot of the others, the other ones I tried out, they didn't have that. So, okay. you know, you're just thrown into this universe and people are talking about things that you don't know what, what they are. And then there's like this huge TLDR text about, oh, something about Earth One. Um, yeah. yeah. And then you don't understand what's happening. It's almost like another language at that point. And I think that's another way that um, specifically the way Phoenix was... Uh, formatted really appealed to me was again like each volume took place during a particular period of time but each one was also its own encapsulated story while still being a continuous narrative and that was just brilliant to me because um I definitely had a lot of frustration with reading about the same characters over and over and over again, basically doing the same things, but with a different veneer, a different theme maybe, but kind of like, I, you know, in a very um, magic tree house kind of way that, mm -hmm. that just kind of, that would really get old for me, but Tezka's and especially because Phoenix is about reincarnation and it's about living um, like a person's consciousness learning lessons over different lifetimes, but still facing the same struggles, no matter what era they're born into. There's definitely this theme of um, rebirth and the next rebirth, knowing something a little bit more than the last one did, because you, you kind of go back and forth between the future one that did, did pretty okay for himself and the, you know, maybe medieval one that really had a hard life and mm -hmm. um, did not learn from his struggles. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And this is what you're doing with um, your story as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying, you know, as much as it's about reincarnation, it's also about just accepting the multifaceted nature of personhood, just that none of us is one thing there. Mm -hmm. You just can't, it's okay to embrace the fact that your identity can have different faces and different sides. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. So Tete said Fleischer animation was very innovative for pioneering animation, such as iconic characters as Betty Boop and their take with the Superman theatrical serials in the early 40s. Yeah. Oh, Fle Fleischer was really, you know, um, informative to its time. I think they also did. I think they also did um, the rotoscopes of Cab Calloway, which uh, actually 
leads us to the the pumpkin, but we'll get to that. Um, the there were Betty Boop cartoons that would feature uh, early. Um, oh gosh, what is the name of this animation? Rotoscoping of Cab Calloway, mm -hmm. and they would rotoscope him into these incredible characters that danced you know with his movements but it looked so eerie because of the way that it was done and they would just kind of fit that into the the Betty Boop cartoon I mean it was mind-blowing stuff it had just such a unique aesthetic and appeal mm -hmm. so the pumpkin is it from over the garden wall yes <laughs> over the garden wall is one of my favorite pieces of media I, I watch it all the time just I, I adore it I love the music I love the art style I love the story there's just so the, everything about it is so well balanced and well executed I just love that show it is and you know in many ways I think it's like an American version of Ghibli yeah I, I would say in an aesthetic way you could definitely make that that comparison. Um, I mean, the look is iconic. It's very folk art inspired, but still cartoonish enough that it's it it's just a nice in between where you can suspend some disbelief, but you still have a very set, tangible sense of of what's happening around you know in this mm -hmm. picture. I just that show is so incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And the art style definitely influenced me. And there are actually comic books that continue the adventures of Wirt and Greg. Um, and they carry that, that folk art flavor, of course, with variations when different artists are taking over. Um, but it's iconic. It's just absolutely iconic. It definitely is. And there's that gothic feel as well. Oh, yeah, it definitely has a spooky vibe, and I am for it. I love the spooky vibe. It's great. Mm -hmm. And below the pumpkin is Art Nouveau. Yeah, so that is um, sort of my rendition, my uh, hastily <laughs> improvised rendition of um, Alphonse Mucha's uh, Job cigarette paper advertisement. It was one of several. Um, his work in particular is super influential to me. And um, it's funny that we we're at that, you know, this really is kind of a past to present, I guess. Um, Cause like I said, I tried to draw anime for a really long time and drawing anime taught me a lot about character design and proportions and drawing clothes, which is something that's, um, huge within my art style and just in and of itself. Um, but it never quite looked right. When I tried to draw anime, it just didn't really look like anime. And um, when I really started to play with what I wanted things to look like, it wound up looking very nouveau. And the more I got into it and the more that I explored that, and the more I just loved the art nouveau movement and this sense of um, symbolism and um, a certain amount of artistic mysticism and uh, opulence for the sake of opulence. Again, just being be beauty for the sake of being beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I definitely see the parallels between Art Nouveau and early anime in, um, 
you know, these very particular poses and the way that the hair is illustrated almost strand by strand and, um, you know, how it's really more the idea of how something feels in a scene like Sailor Moon's transformation. You know, mm. it's about how she feels when she becomes Sailor Moon. And that's what we visually see on the screen. That's true. And also another similarity is the, the line art, I think. Yeah, I would absolutely say the line art is, I mean, the careful attention to textures and fabrics and, again, the hair and, you know, flowers. You'll, there's kind of a, I don't even know how old the trope is of, um, you know, in anime and in manga, framing a character with these intricate roses for a frame um, just to kind of give us that picture of romanticizing that person for a second. And it's very nouveau, just, mm -hmm. you know, the way that it's styled, I can absolutely see the parallels. Absolutely. Unlike the other art styles, like, you know, romanticism, for example, which doesn't have line art because it's just, you know, photorealism. Yeah. And even, um, the pre-Raphaelite movement, which is one of my other favorite art movements, it's not focused on line work. It's focused more on um, a, a kind of photorealism where you get a sense for more real textures. Mm -hmm. Right. And shading and lighting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So Tete Debung said, over the garden wall had so much mystique, charm. It really immersed us not only into the world, but the subconscious questioning of existence. Oh you know, it's gosh, been seven yeah. years since I watched it, so I can't <gasps> quite remember. But I was quite touched by the end. And, you know, it really stands out from, unfortunately, a lot of modern American cartoons, which me and Tete have critiqued many times. Yeah. You know, things like, you know, Invader Zim, uh, Fairly Odd Parents, right? And yeah. those kind of things, they have their place, definitely. But it has a very different feel. Even Invader Zim was super different than what most... I mean, I would say that one was the most grim, the most bleak. And I think that it spoke to a lot of kids. Personally, I didn't watch it when I was target age. But I know people who did. And as I watch it, I begin to see that, you know, kids, kids like me who loved the macabre but were in a little more normal growing up situation would have loved that show because it's grim, but it decides to make a dark joke out of the realities they already had to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. Whereas for me, like over the garden wall appealed to everything I love. It appeals to the folklore and fairy tale enthusiast. It, and it, it, um, the, historical musician and fashion you know researcher I don't know what you want to call mm -hmm. it enthusiast um <laughs> in me it and and also as someone who uh, uh really loves delving into the history of early film and early animation this show has so many great nods to all of those things while still presenting a hugely important lesson for kids that they they get to keep control of their narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'll always kind of be, um, I still remember watching the show for the first time and in um, some of the final episodes, just kind of being shook by 
how the beast was represented and like, wow, they really, they really put that on screen. It was just, um, it was a, it was a huge moment for me. And I felt just so much less alone in a, mm-hmm. a strange way. Like, okay, somebody else gets it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But That's definitely to, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to give Wirt right. that moment when he says, no, this is stupid. I'm not going to do this. It, that's something <laughs> that not a lot of kids media chooses to do. So I was, I was intrigued for sure. That's true. But yeah, Invader Zim definitely had its appeal. I guess my point was more about the art style, which unfortunately, mm. according to me and Tetsu, just our personal opinion, doesn't look that appealing. You know, it looks very oversimplified. The colors are kind of basic. And, you know, something like Over the Garden Wall has a more refined palette, like less simplified. It really does. And it's interesting what details they choose to latch onto because those are you know, conscious artistic choices. Whereas, like you said, with with stuff like Invader Zim and even, what was I watching? I was watching Amphibia recently, which the story is kind of interesting, but the art style just does not, Mm -hmm. like it doesn't flip my trigger. I don't know how else to put that, but it just doesn't, I'm like, okay, this is bland. But... (laughs) (laughs) Over the Garden Wall had it. It had such a purposeful aesthetic, and um, it's one that's immediately kind of like I was saying earlier, kind of nostalgic. Um, it's definitely like, oh, you, you know, this is familiar. You know what this is, but then it kind of flips that on its head. Mm-hmm, right. So underneath Art Nouveau, I, well, there's two things I see. I see Finn from Adventure Time, and next to your shoulder, I'm not really sure which that character is. I've seen. Okay. I think I've seen. Is it Steven Universe? No. So that character is. I, I doubt many people would recognize him. That is Tack the Cobbler from The Thief and the Cobbler, which is a. I mean, it's it's kind of a long story, but it's a movie by the animator behind Roger Rabbit. Um, and it was kind of his um, passion project for several decades. Um, and it's really tragic. Honestly, it's an unfinished animated film um, that quintessentially got ripped by Disney. And then um, they even went so far as to buy the rights, finish it out with a cheap production studio, like literally take the project from him and the rights to it from him. And Mm. um, some people are familiar with a cut that's I think called the princess and the cobbler that is, it's not what Richard Williams was making, but there is a sort of restored um, it's called the recobbled cut that's available on YouTube I highly recommend, even though it is unfinished and some sequences are, you know, and it's not perfect, clearly. Um, it's kind of like a moving piece of art. And that really struck me. Um, and his the, the artistic style that he has that can go between um, stylized fine art and Looney Tunes at the drop of a hat uh, is very striking and so fun to watch. And it's, it's just an absolutely beautifully animated piece of art. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I see. I was just Googling it. So it seems like Tack always has uh, nails in his mouth. I was a bit confused by that at first. Yeah, so he has these two little tacks. And as you watch him in the animation, the two tacks kind of turn in his mouth in a way that you would expect that to do. But the lines that they make form his expression of his mouth. And he never speaks oh, through the whole film. I see. Um, yeah, I and it's I thought that's just a brilliant choice. His design is very striking and um I just I love that character for a multitude of reasons. Mhm. Mm so Tete said Art Nouveau and vintage anime and manga definitely share many similarities, especially with their flowing slope of line and use of light airy aesthetics. Agreed. Oh, well put. Well put, mm -hmm. Tete. And then she says, The Thief and the Cobbler was very beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad you've watched it. I, oh, the beautiful details. The animator did many beautiful details um, with so much detail called Ethel, especially their work being influenced by more vintage textures. Mm, yeah, um, he actually based a lot of the uh, landscapes in that film off of Persian miniatures. He did so much research and um, honestly, as someone who read a lot of um, folk and fairy tales from um, Persia and other parts of the Middle East, I would say that even the, the choice of humor that he uses is very accurate to the storytelling voice of those stories. And I was just deeply impressed. Mm, it's it's really fantastic. That's awesome. I should I should check it out sometime. Yeah, um and that actually so we we'll we'll talk about Finn. We'll still talk about Adventure Time, but um next to Tack, you'll see this very stylized cat. Um that's Pengerban from The Secret of Kells, which mm. was the first cartoon saloon motion picture release. They they've they're an animation studio out of Ireland. Um, and they said their artistic inspiration was in part the thief and the cobbler. And you can really see it in a lot of their work. Um, this way that they make these simplified shapes express so much. Uh, they also did song of the sea. One of their more recent films was wolf walkers. Uh, I believe they also animated for breadwinner, which was, I think, oh, an, uh, Oscar award winning. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They animated for that one. Um, but they, the ones that are released as just cartoon saloon are, um, are done in house and they, they hire Irish voice actors and they hiring these incredible people. They're just absolutely gorgeous films. Um, and the way that they use shapes to, in, in as its own form of expressionism um, it almost feels more towards the side of Nouveau where you, you see your Klimt, you know, like using abstract shapes, but working them into, uh, you know, into a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I actually watched the Book of Kells before. I haven't seen their other works, but it was very impressive. I really love oh, yeah. the textures. I can definitely see what you mean by the Klimt's influence. You know, the backgrounds are just really, really overwhelming with so much beautiful details. And then you suddenly see the main characters who are, you know, quite simplified, but they are also very appealing. Yeah. In a way that I would say, unfortunately, Invader Zim did not appeal to me. <laughs> but and I this simplification say, is good. 
even um, Tezka for having, you know, he did definitely have some moments of shoujo opulence in some of his work, but Tezka was also kind of a minimalist and you can see him express so much, he say so much with so few lines. And I think that's something that Cartoon Saloon also does in spades is they mm -hmm. say so much without overwhelming, you know, the, the senses in a certain way. Um, my favorite of theirs personally is Song of the Sea, but I figured Pangerban would be more recognizable. <laughs> so that was, <laughs> oh, and Dulac. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like I've looked up a couple others. Like there was an Italian painter who also leaned into that end of, I think it was sort of the where Nouveau was evolving into deco. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, absolutely. Dulac would be another, definitely another one to um, compare it to. Mm -hmm. Well, how about Adventure Time? That's the last one. I love Adventure Time. Um, I think Adventure Time on the whole, like, I, I love the art style. I don't think I can really replicate it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love the way that their, car their um, character designs are so recognizable and so um so effective at communicating that you know jake can take any shape literally any shape you can think of but you still know it's jake just based on you know something very simple like his eyes or his muzzle still being there or something mm -hmm. um or even finn you know we understand that when his arms are wiggling like that his bones haven't broken. It's a, it's an expression. It's showing us how he feels more than, you know, exactly. any realistic kind of anatomy. <laughs> well, will you be doing that with your series? Um, I would like to throw a little bit of that in, especially in places where there's more dream logic at play. Um, I would love to play with that and different volumes will have some different styles and different, um, different aesthetics. I would say that um, the first volume is definitely going to be a little more along the lines of over the garden wall where it's, you know, kind of understated. It's pretty simple. Um, you know, emphasis is where it's wanted and where it's needed. Um, but I would say that one, uh, one thing I want to play with, particularly with the book of Ka is, um, kind of like I'm sure I've described before, but in early film, um, there were techniques to attempt to colorize for moods. So like they'd put a yellow filter over everything to make it daylight, um, or a blue filter on during nighttime scenes or, uh, you know, a red one during like an exciting or scary scene. And, you know, it tinted instead of being sepia, it would be all shades of whatever color they picked. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely want to play with that, especially considering um, the Book of Ka takes place from 1916 to 1926. So that would be some of the beginnings of film. So we're kind of seeing through laurel's cultural lens um in that sense how the mm -hmm. story unfolds mm -hmm. that makes sense i like that you know that this is that's really interesting and adds a lot of texture to it 
Yeah, I I wanted to play with that because um, I want to keep it clear that as much as it is one narrative, we are experiencing a lot of different characters, individual stories. This whole thing is Josephine's story, yes, but it's also Laurel's story and Melindor's story and so on and so forth. And, you know, there are many others. Um, and that they each have their own feelings about what's going on and what's happening. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Right. So that's all of the influences, right? Yeah. Um, I would say another artist that if I can sneak in one more that I didn't get to put in, um, one artist that definitely I think influenced me a lot was uh, Nilesh Mistry, who is an uh, illustrator and artist out of Bombay, I believe. Uh, he illustrated a book called The Seven Wise Princesses that I absolutely just poured over for hours, and I still do because it it appealed to that um, the the whimsy as well as the nouveau, and you know. It's, a certain balance of stylism and realism. I would say definitely look up his work. He's on Instagram, mm -hmm. an incredible artist. Um, and he was a huge influence in how I developed in, in my own style as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot from his work. Right. And what um, media will you be using to create your series? Will your line art be in pencil and the coloring digital, for instance? I recall that back in 2021, you said that you would be using Procreate to color your drawings. Has that changed? Um, so what I'd like to do is, yes, I would like to, um, yes, that is that is his name, Vimis, um, Vimis Lick. Uh, so I would like to draw my panels with graphite and um, for the most, most part, yes, digital, um, coloring and adjustment. I would, however, like to do um, some pages with watercolors, and I would love to do uh, cover art also with with watercolors and gouache, um, just to give it a, a little special touch, you know. And and uh, I might play with. Um, I, I might actually also play with some textures and, and kind of collage a little bit. Uh, again, particularly in places that are in parts of the work that take place in abstract settings mm -hmm. um, in kind of a uh, Madoka Magica way. Did you watch that oh, show? Yeah, of course. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. It's a great show. Yeah, um, I is. was struck by the way every time they faced a witch there was this change of texture and um, this, you know, you could immediately grasp again, the feeling of what it felt like to be inside that person's mind, which is so like, that's so mm -hmm. sad. I love that. Um, yeah. But it's so um, impactful. And I would love to play with that in, mm. um, in certain parts of the books. Yeah. Yes, it's perfect. Yeah, I love their use of color and imagery. And, you know, it really sucks you into some of the characters because, you know, spoiler alert, some of them become the villains, you know, yeah. in a twist. And basically you get to see how crushed they are when they realize the truth. 
Yeah, and I would I it's it's also something that as an audience it's like a little puzzle we put together of who that person was before they devolved into that and just, you know, what it feels like to be inside their head. Um I just absolutely loved that about that show. Mhm, absolutely. One of the best anime. For sure. Definitely. So will there be stylistic changes depending on what book or world we're in? For example, would the Book of Ket have a slightly different style than the Book of Ba? Um, I, you know, I think about that a lot because I know that the first two books will be pretty similar except in their color schemes, really. Um, but I haven't. I think that there, I think that there will be, um, I think that there will be first of all, because, you know, these are books where not only the main character is changing throughout the book, but the audiences, they follow it, you know, as these years come out, these people are changing. And I think mm -hmm. that's something to keep in mind. Um, and I think that, um, you know, during that time, I will also change uh, you know, as a person and as an artist, I don't know mm -hmm. how long this will take. And I'm resigned to that fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure there are things that I'll learn and I'll do differently as an artist that will impact the way that this is um, put on paper in the future. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think every, every artist and writer has that as well, because a lot of works do take many years to complete. So it evolves with them. Yes. Exactly. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been it's been great to be back. It's so fascinating. You know, I can't wait to see more art for this series. I am looking forward to drawing more. <laughs> All right. See you. Bye. Thanks for joining Tete and everyone else. Yes, thanks for joining. Bye.